This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is an encore from 2012, a conversation with documentary filmmaker Rick Burns, Dr. David Blight of Yale University, and Dr. Drew Faust of Harvard University about Burns's film, Death and the Civil War. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. With me from the Radio Foundation Studios in New York City is filmmaker Rick Burns, and we're going to be talking about a film on PBS. Part of the American experience is called Death and the Civil War. So, Rick, I'd like to welcome you to the journal. Thank you so much for having me, Walter. People know a lot about the Civil War. We're talking about the 150th anniversary. Death and the Civil War, why focus in on something so somber? You know, I think that that is the $64,000 question in a sense at the root of what Drew Faust's remarkable book, This Republic of Suffering, on which we based the film, was about. Um, in the 150 years that have elapsed since the war, I mean, surely everyone knows as an article of faith that the war was about massive death and carnage on a scale that we haven't seen before or since. But as David Blight, um, who I know you'll be speaking with as well this morning, um, has put it, as has Drew, there's been a tendency to sort of metabolize the carnage and transform it into a narrative that makes it somehow bearable. And that's a very human, very human and understandable response. So we think of it, the war, in terms of the nobility and the valor of the men on each side who fought and died. We think of it in terms of the great, the new birth of freedom, as Lincoln put it, um, and the cause of emancipation and widening the ambit of liberty in America. And that makes a lot of sense. The tendency of these two narratives, and I think most of the narratives that we fit the war into, and this is very much Drew Faust's point, is to take our eye off what was the central experience for Americans during that four-year period, which was death on a scale so unlike anything they had experienced before, as to overwhelm every structure, psychic, institutional, military, political, moral. And that main work, as Dr. Faust puts it, of the war experience was the work of death and somehow trying to find a human, individual, and collective way to contend with it. And I know that sounds like a very sober and sobering proposition, but it's one which I have found um, has the hard granite of reality in it and therefore has the exhilaration of truth. And as someone who had the opportunity uh, two decades ago with my brother Ken to visit this topic, I've found this a a new and kind of electrifying way into um, that amazing, um, bewildering, staggering four-year period in American history. Well, the war came home to people in a, in a very, not just a personal way. As you note, 20% of the white male population in the South was killed. In South Carolina, the number is 33%. Those are staggering of, statistics. Of, of white males. And as I remind my European colleagues, they talk about the Great War and Lost Generation when they talk about 15 or 16% of the eligible males killed in Germany, France, England. And here in Little South Carolina, you've got twice that. Right. And then you've got the wounded who return. Dealing with this, and you've got wonderful sources that you incorporate into both photographic and diaries and newspapers. Mary Boykin Chestnut had a, uh, a quote in, in her, her famous diary. She said, Carolinians became almost inured to death. And then right. she talked about there being a group of women... I think, rolling bandages or something in a parlor. And somebody said, don't you remember so-and-so? Wasn't he a nice fellow? He was killed at Shallow. Now, Rick, that's just... No, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, and equally heartbreaking is the sense that we understand that this happened. No one had any way of being prepared for it. No one... There was no model of human experience, certainly in America... Um, that people could begin to anticipate carnage and death on this scale. When the Mexican War of 1846 to 48, you know, a couple of thousand battlefield deaths over a two-year period. Well, we had half those battlefield deaths in 12 hours at First Manassas. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, we weren't in Kansas anymore. And of course, the scale of the carnage, the scale of the death, the death rate increased exponentially as each year of the war passed. And so... As Drew has put it, 
you know, we were always playing catch-up throughout the war, hoping for the first couple of years that we would, one knockout blow would lead one side or the other to lay down their arms and quit. And it really took two full years um, and hundreds of thousands of dead for first in the North and then to some degree on both sides. The North and Northern and Southern armies to realize that this was going to be a long war of attrition, that it was not going to be an 18th century, early 19th century war, um, that it was going to be about the arithmetic, as Lincoln put it, of bloodshed and, and lethality on the battlefield. With the coming of the Civil War, the first modern war, the first mass war of the modern age, death would enter the experience of the American people and the body politic of the American nation as it never had before, on a scale and in a manner no one had ever imagined possible, and under circumstances for which the nation would prove completely unprepared. History is full of brutal surprises that we really don't see coming. Nobody predicted Antietam. Nobody predicted Gettysburg. What the Civil War brought was this terrible modern confrontation of a set of old 18th and 19th century values with modern warfare. And the result, of course, is mass slaughter that is harder and harder for anyone to explain, even to themselves. The unimaginable scale of the slaughter, the sheer numbers of the dead, would be all but impossible to comprehend. Nearly two and a half percent of the population would die in the conflict. An estimated 750,000 people in all, more than in all other American wars combined. Never before and never since have so many Americans died in any war by any measure or reckoning. Transpose the percentage of dead that mid 19th century America faced into our own time. Seven million dead if we had the same percentage. What would we as a nation today be like if we faced the loss of seven million individuals? And so it invaded just about everyone's life in one way or another. Well, as you point out with, at the opening of the film, when the war began, there were no national cemeteries, no provisions for identifying the dead or letting families know that somebody had died. In fact, I think it was in the wilderness. Union soldiers were so sure that they were going to be killed, they went in battle with their names on a piece of paper pinned to their to their uniforms. Uh, no, right. you know, no federal relief organizations, no ambulance corps, real, no real federal hospitals, no provisions for burying the dead. Or for notifying next to Ken. I mean, imagine our, that. Yeah. This is Walter Edgar's journal. Today's program is an encore from 2012, a conversation with documentary filmmaker Rick Burns, Dr. David Blight of Yale University, and Dr. Drew Faust of Harvard University about Burns's film, Death and the Civil War. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. From the beginning, really by the summer of 61, people began to realize that there was no one in charge. And I don't, there's no finger wagging in, in saying that. There was no one need, understood that there would be a, a problem of this order that required an agency that didn't exist. And so you had very quickly more in the North than in the South um, organizations, private volunteer organizations, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, the U.S. Christian Commission, trying to fill the gap. Um, but it was a huge gap to be filled. And the title of Drew's book on which he based the film, This Republic of Suffering, is, of course, a, a quote of Frederick Law Olmsted, famous designer of Central Park, who became put in charge of the U.S. Sanitary Commission and found his way on the peninsula of Virginia in 1862, where he watched train boxcarfuls of dead and dying soldiers being offloaded on the wharves. And he said, pointed out glumly to his wife, in this republic of suffering, individual experience doesn't really count for much in this sense that they're just every system had been overwhelmed. And what you really see during the war is at every conceivable level, from the most intimate, psychic, religious, family level to military, political, with respect to strategy, with respect to the overall political um, organization of the country, to governmental structure, America and Americans 
are trying to improvise a new way of coping with death on that scale. And, and, and it's remarkable to realize that what the bureaucratic systems, which we now take for granted, I mean, this year, as every year, uh, the United States government will spend $100 million searching for the MIAs from World War II, Vietnam, and Korea. And Americans understand that with a complete unanimity that that's the right thing to do. But of course, that was not being done at all during the Civil War. No one knew you could have that vast number of missing um, and dead in action. More than half of the bodies in the Civil War were never identified. So you had this remarkable, horrifying feature that there was for so many family members and friends, there was no closure. You know, you could figure if Johnny went to Antietam and you never heard from him again, the chances were pretty good that he died. But if you didn't have the body, if you didn't have anybody confirming the death, how long would you hold on to the hope that Johnny would walk in the door? So you have this decades-long experience in the second half of the 19th century of a, of a grieving country looking for a closure it could never quite find. Well, Rick, there's a South Carolina story. There was a family in Darlington County that sent five sons off to war. Two were killed. One returned, wounded. Other two never heard from. In the last 10 years, going through prisoner of war records of Elmira, those last two sons have been identified. A hundred and fifty years later, right? Uh, but the family never knew what happened. Nobody knew they'd been captured. They just disappeared. That's right. I mean, and we understand that humanly. I mean that um, this mis- this mysterious passage that occurs comes to us all is one which, when it comes, we very much hope that it comes within the kind of the sacred embrace of family and friends who we see the loved ones when they die. They see us. And that as we undertake that journey, it's at least known that there's some connection, visceral, felt, physical connection with the people who mean most to us. That was obliterated by the Civil War. That, that primal connection, which no matter what our religion is very basic to the anthropology of the human race. We want to be near the body. We want to see the eyes close. We want to put that body into a grave or cremate it because we need to have some physical passage that we undertake. The poet undertaker in our film, Thomas Lynch, is really, I think, quite remarkably poignant about this. That we need to see where people go and that when people disappear into an oblivion, as they did you know, 50% of the time mm-hmm. in the Civil War, as they did at the World Trade Center, as they do in tsunamis, as they do in all sorts of horrifying events, it's a staggering psychic blow on top of what's already a staggering psychic blow. Well, when people think of the Civil War music, a lot of times they remember the rather upbeat songs. You think about things from the Yellow Rose of Texas but they don't remember something like Somebody's Darling, which was a song oh from gosh, right. the South with the chorus that said, Somebody's Darling, Somebody's Pride, Who Will Tell His Mother Where Her Boy Died? Right. Rick, there are lots of songs like that that, that people talk about. The soldiers accepted the fact that they were going to get killed from the ones of the wilderness are singing just before the battle, Mother, I'm thinking right. most of you. And you'll not forget me, mother, if I'm numbered with the slain. And how many grieving mothers and fathers and family members were in some small way consoled by those songs and the song sheets that sprang up north and south throughout the war, in which, in a a sense, what they're doing is getting a vicarious message home from a son or a husband or a brother or a father who never had the opportunity to bear that news himself. So you see in so many ways the culture, individuals, struggling to find a workaround, something which will fill the gap, restore the connection, or at least seem to restore a connection, which it's unbearable for any of us to have broken so severely. And then you get things after the war like the vacant chair. Right. Uh, When Johnny comes marching home again, which is a little bit bit upbeat. But then you've got this really heartbreaking one, tell me, is my father coming home? And based upon a real event of a unit coming home and a a boy looking for his dad and never finding him. I mean, imagine what that that experience is. Um, You know, we we assume, we take it as an article of faith that if you fight and die for the U.S. armed forces, someone calls up and says, we regret to inform you. So there's no message delivered by the federal government or the Confederate government during the war like that. What happens is basically military reports of the casualties, very erroneous and, and scattered in their accuracy, um, are released after a battle. Newspapers print those reports. 
dead and wounded from Antietam, from Shiloh, from wilderness. Um, they're often highly inaccurate, but you're getting, you the mother, you the father, the sister, the brother, the friend, are getting your information by reading the morning paper. And then if you don't see the name, but you don't hear from the, from the soldier, it sets up this tidal wave of panic and grief. You begin to like inundate the government. You go down to the battlefields if you have the means to do so. Where is my son? Where is my father? Could you please provide information for me? Ad hoc organizations like the Sanitary Commission become kind of 19th century bulletin boards for whatever information can be provided. Please tell me in letter after letter to the Sanitary Commission, please tell me I haven't heard from my father for three months. My mother is in an anguish, a frenzy of anxiety about it. Please let us know, is he living? Is he dead? Somehow give some closure to us. Let us know. Which is why, you, again, going back to some of the music you have, asking a friend to write a letter and letting the family know that I'm on my way out of this world. Or that we open our film with a remarkable, a famous letter, Bloodstained, from James Robert Montgomery, who was a private in the Confederate Signal Corps in Virginia from Mississippi. Dear Father, this is my last letter to you. I have been struck by a piece of shell, and my right shoulder is horribly mangled. And I know death is inevitable. I am very weak, but I write to you because I know you would be delighted to read a word from your dying son. I know death is near, that I will die far from home and friends of my early youth. But I have friends here, too, who are kind to me. My friend Fairfax will write you at my request and give you the particulars of my death. My grave will be marked so that you may visit it if you desire to do so. It is optionary with you whether you let my remains rest here or in Mississippi. I would like to rest in the graveyard with my dear mother and brothers, but it's a matter of minor importance. Give my love to all my friends. My strength fails me. My horse and my equipments will be left for you. Again, a long farewell to you. May we meet in heaven. Your dying son, J.R. Montgomery. Of course, in the 21st century, where our heads snap up at that word delighted and then sort of bow down again in sorrow as we realize, right, because the worst, delighted because worse than the news that your son is dying is to have the son die with no news at all. So at least in the vicarious connection, the hand reached out through the written bloodstained letter, there's some connection back to that child, that son, that brother that means so much. Okay. Rick, this portion we're going to have to sign off, but any sort of closing remarks you'd like to make that we can include in our conversation? I would just say that getting back to your first question, Walter, and thank you so much for having me um, join this conversation. It's, there's something I find extraordinarily uplifting about the story. Those were hard times, and what we're talking about are hard truths and hard realities to bear. But if you look at things like Lincoln at Gettysburg, whose address um, takes place while there are open graves, stacked coffins. So when he says to the people, to the folks at Gettysburg there in November 1863, from these honored dead, we must take increased devotion to that task for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. Those are not abstract dead bodies. Those are bodies in the coffin, unburied at what's the f one of the very first national cemeteries in American history. And that sense that under the pressure of those times, we did expand our sense of what the contract, the basic social contract is. If you ask citizens to fight and die in a war that's increasingly, as the war goes on, about the definition of citizenship in America, there's a transformed relationship of the individual and the government. And that transformation is what we see happening under horrific circumstances, to be sure, but finally in ways in which we do see, in Lincoln's words, a new birth of freedom, 
a continuity of the American government and the experience that it enshrines. And so I find there's something, in the end, there's more than a silver lining to this. There's a sense that this was, as Shelby Foote put it in the series Ken and I did on the Civil War, the crossroads of our being. And it was really the place that 150 years later, we emerge from that, we recognize ourselves in those hard times, and indeed, perhaps nowhere more so than in these hard truths, 750,000 dead in four years. Okay. Thanks but, so much for having me. Rick, thank you for being with us, and we'll all look forward to seeing death in the Civil War. Thanks again, Walter. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Today's program is an encore from 2012, a conversation with documentary filmmaker Rick Burns, Dr. David Blight of Yale University, and Dr. Drew Faust of Harvard University about Burns' film, Death and the Civil War. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. I now have on the phone Dr. Drew Gilpin Faust of Harvard University, author of many books, one about James Henry Hammond of South Carolina, but most recently, The Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, which is the basis for Rick Burns' film, Death in the Civil War. Drew, it's good to talk to you again. Walter, it's great to be with you. I read your book when it came out. I, I saw Rick's film, and it's stunning. And I, I mean, particularly when you, you go back and look at the death statistics as I concentrate, obviously, here on South Carolina, mm-hmm. where one-third of the eligible white male population was killed in the war. Mm-hmm. And then you read, whether it's Mary Chestnut or Emma LeConte, you, you start reading the letters and diaries. And towards the end of the war, I think Chestnut even uses a, a phrase referring to the women of South Carolina, they've become inured to death because it's, the notices are coming in mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. daily. And there's a passage in the Chestnut Diary, I believe, where she says this this constant drumbeat of funeral processions just gets to be almost expected background noise because there are so many who are being mourned and, and who've, who've died. So South Carolina is certainly a, a kind of seat of the um, extremes of loss and, and mourning. Obviously, with a third, you know, the large percentage here, but across the South, it was 20%. Mm-hmm. I think maybe one of the things that brought it home everywhere, blue and gray, is men went to fight in local units. So you have all the boys from one town mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who might be wiped out at shallow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, there was a unit that um, Edmund Whitman, who after the war is part of the leadership of the reburial movement that was funded by the um, federal government at Shiloh, he found an entire unit buried together. Just about every man in it was killed, and and they were interred there on the field, and really weren't recognized. Their graves weren't recognized until this reburial movement identified them. Um, in 1867. So that was just an example of the kind of lingering reality of that presence of death because the loved ones of that community wouldn't have known what had happened to them, where their graves were, whether they were identified in death. Uh, And so it it underscores that death doesn't just happen when it happens in the Civil War because so many of the dead were missing and unnamed and didn't have decent burial with family present that this morning went on and on in the uncertainty of that that situation. David Blight is now joined us on the line, right, David? Yes, I am. Thank you. Okay. Professor David Blight from Yale University. And so now we have Harvard, Yale, and Columbia, South Carolina on the telephone. And David, we were, we were talking about the, the overwhelming impact of death on everyday life in communities north and south. And that's something that didn't stop with the war. The memories lingered on, did they not? Well, they certainly did. No experience in American history left as much family destruction and the emotional, spiritual challenge of processing that and then memorializing it. Uh, The very idea of death and the very idea of memorialization transformed because of the scale of death in the Civil War. That's what Drew's book and this film demonstrate uh, as never before. I've seen the film and I've, I've found it so gripping. And that opening letter from the mm-hmm. the young lad in Mississippi mm-hmm. who tells his dad he'll be delighted, surely be <laughs> delighted to hear from his dying son. 
And that might sound strange today, but at least his father would know. At least um, Mr. Montgomery receiving this letter from his dying son escaped what one Southerner described as the dread void of uncertainty into which so many families found themselves falling because of the lack of information about missing and dead loved ones. And as has been pointed out in in both of your writings and the film, the government just had, north or south, there was no structure to deal with this. You know, that was no, no. They were totally unprepared. Uh, how could they ever have been prepared? They were unprepared ideologically uh, as well as structurally, using government on such a vast scale to deal with uh, you know social crisis like this scale of death, much less the physical. Political military crisis. Uh, the country had never faced this before. It's a, it's one of many, many examples of how the government itself, the very idea of government, uh, was transformed by that war and the sheer challenge of finding the dead, burying the dead, commemorating the dead, moving the dead, memorializing the dead, uh, became a public phenomenon. Death is obviously private. But it became, because of this war, a public phenomenon, a public responsibility. That's in part because the war was so caught up with ideas of citizenship, which we've talked about and thought about so often in the context of emancipation and its redefinitions of citizenship. But the notion of citizenship extends to encompass those who have sacrificed for the country in a way that had never been demanded of individuals before. And so the emergence of a sense of governmental responsibility to its citizens gets tied up very much with the whole change of policy and attitude towards the government's uh, obligations to the dead soldiers. Well, one of the things I find striking on both sides, but particularly in the South, is the volunteer organizations that sprang up like the Wayside Hospitals. Mm-hmm. The Confederate government fought tooth and nail to try to keep them from coming into existence. They, they didn't want the women dealing with performing what was basically uh, USO or medical treatment that was not under the control of the of the government. And Lincoln called the Sanitary Commission the fifth wheel. He was very dubious about that very important um, philanthropic organization that grew up in private hands during the war. So similar kind of suspicion, even though the need and the lack of um, capacity was so clear. Well, do you wonder at some point they would, the idea that especially women were going to come to see firsthand what was going on? I mean, there's that incredible description of the Wayside Hospital uh, here in Columbia, Today we gave wounded men their breakfast. They were awfully smashed up, objects of misery, wounded, maimed, disabled. This wasn't bugles and drums kind of message that was hitting the home front. Mm-hmm. The no. terrible reality of war, I think that's a quote about from Oliver Wendell Holmes about photography mm-hmm. and the way photography brought the war home in an unprecedented manner. And, of course, for the South, It wasn't just photography. It was the very presence of these battlefields and the misery they inflicted in a a direct face-to-face way. So this was a war Americans saw and lived with and um, were overwhelmed by. And I think that had a huge effect on mobilizing women and, and other civilians to respond to the suffering they saw all around them. It's actually the first example in our history on any scale where morale, you know, for lack of a better term, that modern term, morale, now was at stake almost immediately. I mean, even with Bull Run, the first major battle, there was, you know, a kind of social shock that that many people would be wounded and dead. And then certainly after Shiloh, the next spring, uh, uh, morale was now at stake in terms of how these battles were being fought how the wounded were cared for, how the dead were cared for, and how much longer this war would go on at this scale. So, you know, these death statistics, uh, all these numbers, you know, are one thing. But in in an age then of more rapid communication than before, morale was suddenly the question. You know, how, how could the Confederacy sustain a war effort if those women 
back home were going to battlefields to find their dead and want to create their own cemeteries and so forth. And But who was going to stop them? Well, that's why I find some of the music that came out of the war so fascinating. Things like The Little Major, which talks about a drummer boy being left on the battlefield. He's just a drummer boy, just let him die. Mm-hmm. Or The Drummer Boy of Shallow. Or All Quiet Along the Potomac Tonight. Not an officer killed, just one of the men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that irony of who matters and can anyone matter in face of this slaughter. One of the things I found striking as I was doing the research for this book was how many people talked about the 19th century as a more humane era than what had come before, and great pride in the kind of attentiveness to human suffering and, and human lives and the identity with that as a part of what they saw as modernity. And, of course, the Civil War challenged that fundamentally. And yet there is this sense on the part of many who become active in helping others in the course of the war that this is part of a new humanitarian age, as they put it. So I think that compulsion to show what your values were was a, and what your sense of progress in the world represented. That was a, a very powerful force, I think, in motivating people to respond to realities that seem to contradict those assumptions. And a key word there is progress. It was, it was, it was and has been, it had been by then uh, an age of progress. Uh, everything in you know, technology, the telegraph, the railroad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this was this was an age of progress in which this ghastly all-out total war, if you want, suddenly occurs. So how do you sustain a, a story, a self-definition, a self-image, a national self-image of progress with this many people dying? And and I think it says volumes, as Drew knows, why in the wake of the war, you know, after a while anyway, the narratives and the stories the memorialization that Americans went through, a lot of that had the purpose of trying in some way not to forget, but to put all this death and all this suffering in a place that you could somehow, therefore, overcome it. And sometimes the way we overcome massive loss, massive destruction, especially in the case of the South, is we develop stories develop alternative narratives that uh, sanitize it, wash it away. Uh, The problem is that on a private level, you know, uh, for decades and decades, uh, families still mourn this scale of loss. Uh, I think that's the, the fundamental message here, that this was a scale of loss like never before uh, in any modern society. You really have to go back to something like the Thirty Years' War in Europe to find this kind of scale of loss in a society. It affected uh, everything from burial practices to how people came to think about the past and memorialize the past. And, of course, it was not just the death, the the number of maimed. You can add about another third to the casualty figures. And, yeah. And, and you look at those... Veterans reunions, North and South, and the pinned-up yeah. sleeves, the crutches. The uh, well, there were even uh, there were Union veterans groups. Uh, they weren't always welcome in the official groups, but they, they ran what they called left-handed writing contests. These were guys who had lost an arm, at least, uh, and they would try to write essays. And uh, they were called. Uh, the assumption was that everyone was right-handed. Now that may. Or may course, was not probably true, but they had left-handed writing contests. And the state of Mississippi spent a substantial portion of its budget after the war in times of great distress and hardship on um, artificial limbs Mm -hmm. for individuals who um, experienced amputation during the war. It would have been hard to visit an American train station, Mm -hmm. uh, town center, town green, whatever, circa 1885, 1890, 95, without seeing the sleeveless veteran. Mm -hmm. So many people commented on it. I mean, they would hang out at the train station. They would be out in the parks of a city. You uh, you could not have missed it. And then you think of the psychological wounds, too, that would not have been so visible. There's uh, oh. one soldier that came from Wisconsin named Henry Taylor, whose papers I read, and he died um, in a 
prison hospital in Charleston, South Carolina in 1864, and his father tried to get information about the circumstances of his death and kept writing to all his comrades. There is a letter from this father in 1895 to one of Henry Taylor's um, comrades from the Union Army, seeking still information about Henry's death. And the comrade writes back and says, I have gray hair now. You know, I don't even remember these things anymore. And yet, Henry Taylor's father is still focused on trying to understand his son's death 30 years after the war has ended. I I found that so striking. Well, and we've also got the, you know, today everybody talks about post-traumatic stress. There have been a few studies uh, with Union veterans not with the South. We didn't have veterans' homes down here. But right. their, their letters I've seen, and I'm, I'm sure you both have too, Uncle Jack came back from the war and he was never the same. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. he drank himself, to, you know, the, yep. yeah. uh, which are, you know, are clearly the indications of PTSD. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, Isn't it Kate Stone's uh, famous diary? In fact, Drew, you, you edited it, I think. Mm-hmm. Where she talks about what she have three brothers, uh, I forget now, but I forget how many died. But one came home and basically never spoke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this a lost soul? I mean, she you know she describes that process right among her own her own brothers, uh, and and the absence of men. Right, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the women's diaries, particularly post war, there's just an absence of men. This is a vast unknown problem. Seems to me uh, we may never get very close to it for how this affected the South. You're right; there were no veterans' hospitals that kept some records. Uh, and on top of battle fatigue, PTSD was defeat, mm-hmm. colossal defeat. And uh, you know, the Gettysburg Address talks about not having died in vain and right. ordered and dying so that a nation might live. Right. That was not the experience of the Confederates. They died and no. their nation did not live. So right. how do they understand those deaths, which seem to have been largely wasted in yeah. uh, pursuit of a victory that didn't happen? It has to be rewritten as a different story. And I think that's where some of the impetus for the neo-Confederate movement and honoring the oh, Confederate sure. dead comes to compensate. The lost cause is built within that. It's a response to defeat yeah. initially. It becomes many other things over time. but. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit older than you all, but I grew up in Mobile, as, as you know. I went to military school, prep school there. But every Confederate Memorial Day, we marched to the Confederate rest, and it was an hour or two-hour program on a Sunday, the Sunday afternoon closest to Confederate Memorial Day. It was in, in May. And you had people reciting Father Abram Ryan's poems. You, oh, yeah. you know, somebody was singing Tending Tonight. And then the UDC would decorate the graves. There's, there's a huge Confederate rest there in Mobile. There's also a national cemetery, but that's across the road from this. But, I mean, this, this isn't—I graduated in high school in 1961. We were still doing that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. This is Walter Edgar's journal— Today's program is an encore from 2012, a conversation with documentary filmmaker Rick Burns, Dr. David Blight of Yale University, and Dr. Drew Faust of Harvard University about Burns' film, Death and the Civil War. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. David has a, a wonderful story he tells in the film about another dimension of this, which is very much located in South Carolina, uh, in Charleston, because we have to remember how many African-Americans died in the war in various circumstances, both in their military service and also as civilians in the disruptions of Southern society. And what memory meant to African-American Southerners is, is a powerful story as well, and one that's, I think, not been told very clearly in and uh, David's story of the that, Memorial but, Day is, is wonderful. Well, it, that, yeah, there is that very much a South Carolina story, but there's, there's a whole new dimension now that a lot of people are studying, and that is the this, this scale of suffering, disease, and death that occurred in the contraband mm-hmm. camps. The 20, 30-odd official sites that freed people uh, managed to get to by the hundreds of thousands, but... Uh, there were some pretty awful death rates in some of those camps. So emancipation itself, which you know we tend to collectively celebrate, uh, was itself a process, uh, you know, freedom through death. Uh, 
And I think in the coming years, we're, there are already books coming out about uh, emancipation that show this. Uh, yeah, the Civil War and emancipation is, a, you could argue, the turning point of American history, but it happened through a tremendous scale of loss. And in the 150 years, uh, our memorial culture has done so much to try to not erase that, but to put it aside in in the service of a more unifying narrative, uh, of, a, of a story of a country that had a terrible tragedy but just became united and greater for it. And we understand why that happens. But you know, if you go back to 1961 when you were having that parade in Mobile, and, and it's entirely understandable. The lost cause culture, if we can call it that, that narrative, that story, very local, very southern, but also in some ways quite national by then, had become so deeply ingrained in our memorial culture that, you know, it, it, had, be, it had become a war that, by the centennial, uh, wasn't really about anything anymore. It was about sacrifice and a country that became greater because of it. There's, of course, a lot of truth in that, but it left behind a story of causes and consequences that we did collectively almost forget. Fifty years later now, um, it's a different story. This film about to appear on PBS, just <laughs> it's, it's unimaginable 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, I, I don't know what date to put on it, but um, uh, this is a darker, deeper, uh, more sensitive story. That's Learn why I use the word stunning. Yeah. From that opening scene, reading the letter back to Camden, Mississippi, mm. it's it it grabs you, and as you said, so he's speaking to his father from his grave. Yeah, yeah. Drew, you've got to go in a couple of minutes. Any last words you'd like to leave with our listeners? The power for me of the voices of those who experienced the war, and the opportunity to look at the war through their eyes from the letters and diaries they left, really changed how I saw the war. And so the act of listening to them was transformative for me. And I hope that listening and also through the film seeing is going to have a, an impact and a meaning for, for those who watch the film. And I'm just enormously grateful to Rick Burns for his engagement with it and his genius and commitment. So... Um, thank you, Walter, for having me on your show. And well, thank you for watching the film. Well, it, it's always a pleasure to have you with us on the Journal, Drew, and keep doing your books that relate to South Carolina. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hard in your field not to come to South Carolina, yep, either, either yep. one of you. <laughs> right. That's absolutely right. David, before we said goodbye to, to Dr. Faust, you were, you were talking about not the, necessarily the compartmentalization, but after the war that you know, had things like friends and foe, you had the blue and gray reunions at Gettysburg. Right. Sure. Um, let's kind of talk about that, that a little bit because it did change the national focus, at least for white America, about what the war was about. Well, the deepest uh, strain in Civil War memory has perhaps always been, and understandably, uh, what we might call a reconciliationist strain. The, the desperate need of a society to find some way to reunify after this kind of massive bloodletting. How do you put a country back together that has experienced a civil war of this scale? I mean, that, that's, that's the story of the history of Reconstruction. It's the story of post-Reconstruction. It is not a pretty story, as we know, particularly in terms of race relations, to say the least. But this reconciliationist spirit the desire ultimately to bring the blue and the gray together to find a unifying theme. And then that unifying theme usually became this commonality of soldiers' valor is perfectly understandable. I mean, there's, there's, you know, why would we not expect this to occur? Uh, and But I'd also say that reconciliation of spirit, that reconciliation of memory is deeply rooted originally in, again, the need to find a way to process this scale of loss, this scale of death. 
It's there in the poetry of Walt Whitman. It, it's there in the writings of so many Southern writers. Um, you know, someone once asked me, why is so much the greatest American literature written by Southerners? And I said, well, you just need to ask them. You know, it wouldn't be a William Faulkner without the burden of the Civil War. Walker Percy once answered the question, why do Southerners um, have such deep, long memories? And he just said, because we lost the war. Loss, defeat, and war on this scale is going to develop a culture to explain it. It can take many different forms. Now, the consequences, of course, of this understandable reconciliation as culture can be vast. And the greatest consequences of it were what it ended up leaving out. Um, so memory has enormous political and social consequences. It always has. And we know this again by how we've processed memories of our more modern wars, whether that's the Second World War or Vietnam, or how we even think about Iraq and Afghanistan now, or whether we even want to. Um, whenever Americans, though, have to think about memorialization, how we treat soldiers, uh, how we build monuments, how we think about sacrifice, how we think about who serves in the military and who doesn't. All of these fundamental questions are template for this. The place we really have to go to begin to understand it is the Civil War. We are almost always debating those same old questions. Who serves? Who doesn't serve? Who, you know, who lost the most? What does it mean to lose so many people in war? And then what does a society owe to the families of those who are lost? How do we commemorate individuals whom we've lost? The Civil War, of course, had a vast problem with that because of, as we've discussed, no dog tags, uh, so little ident personal identification, the vast majority of of the dead buried in national cemeteries are buried unknown. Uh, this is unthinkable today. You know, we go to tremendous extents to find our war dead and return them home. That challenge in the Civil War was unredeemable. Uh, they, they simply couldn't do it. And uh, it left a ghastly legacy uh, we've lived with ever since. Well, David, I think that is an incredible summation of not just your own writing, but also this, what this film is trying to do. Yeah. You know, it's a darker story. And, and uh, you know, to be honest, when I was interviewed for it, and even when I saw rough cuts and so forth, I worried. I thought, my goodness, how are people going to respond to this? This is not your granddaddy's civil war. This is not, not the reconciliation story of the blue and the gray. This is not Lee versus Grant so on and so forth, but this is what the war really meant on the ground. This is how it really affected the society. This is how it really affected people. And we have to face this, and I, I think we are now. We certainly have been facing this in scholarship now for years, and that Rick could, uh, could make such a film as this and get it on public television in such a major way is... Uh, it's certainly a turning point for something. We'll see. Well, I'd like to read something that I think this film captures that uh, studying the Civil War now is no longer just about battles and leaders. It's about the common man. And even back during the war, people felt that way. Uh, there was a very famous song that was actually popular with both Blue and Gray called All Quiet Along the Potomac Tonight. And the first verse of the song is this. All quiet along the Potomac tonight, except here and there a stray picket, is shot as he walks on his beat to and fro by a rifleman hid in the thicket. Tis nothing. A private or two now and then will not count in the news of the battle. Not an officer lost, only one of the men moaning out all along his death rattle. That's pretty gripping you know, and there were 750,000 of those men, most of them soldiers, who lost their lives. I have before me a, uh, a book of Civil War songs that was done for the centennial 
Oh, yeah. And the number of songs that deal with death and dying are not the ones that I ever heard growing up. Oh, interesting. You know, everybody heard the the drums and bugles. Look, I mean, look what's in Gone with the Wind and all of the the other. They don't say, write a letter to my mother. I mean, that's where that opening of this film was so gripping. The boy is writing a letter to his dad himself. Right. The vacant chair. Oh, yeah. Just before the battle. Just before the battle. I'm thinking most of you. When this cruel war is over. Yes. Uh, Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, we, we made the, our culture made the war for so long, for generations, really, into a grand adventure. And you know, back at the centennial, that's that by and large what our larger culture still wanted. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the centennial, of course, was punctuated by the civil rights movement, and it uh, <laughs> it made it not such a great show. Uh, but you're right. Looking at the lyrics of the songs is a very interesting way of measuring yeah. these things. David, we're reaching that point. We're going sure. to be signing off shortly. Any last words you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, I just hope they watch this film. I hope they continue to read uh, the great new scholarship that is being done on the Civil War and realize that this is a war um, about those people on the ground, and people buried in the ground, not just about the famous officers not just about the movements of armies. And I think we've made great inroads, actually. There, there, are, still, there are lots of people who read about the Civil War now, and they're, they're, they're not just interested in the, the drums and guns anymore. They're not just interested in uh, troop movements and generals. That's still important. But uh, this kind of social impact of the war is why it still matters. David Blight, Distinguished Professor of History at Yale, I want to thank you for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program was an encore from 2012, a conversation with documentary filmmaker Rick Burns, Dr. David Blight of Yale University, and Dr. Drew Faust of Harvard University about Burns's film, Death and the Civil War. This encore is part of our continuing series, Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.